This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Amen. Thank you, Chelsea. Um, I want to begin by sharing a little bit of a, an experience. Um, before I uh, moved to Korea, which was not too long ago uh, this year, uh, I was in Philadelphia uh, involved in college ministry at the local church I attended. Um, so I was, uh, you know, taking care of one of the campuses, and uh, I would occasionally visit the small group Bible studies, uh, you know, just to get to know the students, but also to make sure that nothing weird was being taught. Um, but I would occasionally visit the various Bible studies, and one of the Bible studies uh, I attended, uh, we were just hanging out after we did the study, uh, and we were just having random conversations, and inevitably, um, as most college students do, I think, um, the conversation geared towards their most favorite topic, which is dating and marriage. Um, so the conversation kept going, uh, and we, that conversation inevitably, again, started to uh, take its course, and we started to talk about um, what they looked for in the opposite gender. Uh, and, you know, the students were very open about it, and most of them uh, were pretty honest, uh, and they shared about uh, the good Christian character they wanted to see in the opposite gender that they wanted to meet. Um, and specifically with the guys, as they were mentioning these things, they would slip in some physical features uh, as, you know, they didn't want to feel too fake, but, uh, you know, and they wanted to be a little bit honest. Uh, the girls, most of them remained with the personality and character traits. Uh, except with a couple who really threw in height, which was interesting. They said, I, I can't, it's a non-negotiable, they have to be taller than me. Um, 
So as we were talking, I thought it'd be uh, interesting to, uh, and fun, to kind of uh, ask a question. Uh, and I asked them uh, this question, uh, and, and it wasn't like too abrupt, uh, but I asked them, what minimum salary uh, would you require from your spouse? Uh, and if there is a non-negotiable category there. Um, and one thing to note, uh, the students that I, I work with in Philadelphia, most of them were pretty uh, highly educated, uh, fairly well off for the most part, uh, and that's just something to uh, take note of. And they were uh, high achieving in the career sense. Um, so uh, we were talking about this question, and one of my female student leaders, um, so not just an attender, but uh, she was one of my leaders. Uh, she uh, gave me a very illuminating answer, uh, illuminating in the sense of it illuminated her heart uh, in terms of what I could see. Uh, and she gave me the answer, at least $100,000. Um, yeah, that's what I said inside. <laughs> I was like, I would never make that ever in my life. Um, but for them, I don't know, maybe their standards are different. I, maybe I just don't know economics nowadays. Uh, but I started to learn at that point uh, in my ministry experience that uh, for these college students, as much as morality, keeping them from getting drunk, doing drugs, sleeping around, I realized there was a deeper issue at hand that was brewing all the time. That for them, there was a deep desire for comfort, security, and finances. Uh, and uh, my student leader, who was uh, morally upright for all intensive purposes, as far as the naked eye can see, uh, she was well respected by her peers, uh, and she was someone who I would trust to take care of all the ministry uh, activities. And yet, we see from our passage that this student leader, and I'm not trying to, you know, bash her or anything, it was just a, a good uh, example, that the rich young ruler that we see in our passage is actually not too different from my former student leader. And perhaps in many ways, this message is not just for that student, but also for us, that we are perhaps not that different from the rich young ruler we see uh, in our passage today. And I wanted to organize uh, just uh, the sermon today in three points. Uh, you don't have to uh, remember that particularly, but I thought it'd be uh, good to help your organization. But uh, as you use those points, it is very, uh, I think, more appropriate to follow along in the way how our Lord takes us through the passage, because he's very masterful in the conversation that he leads uh, with the rich young ruler. And the three points that I would like to just help us with is help organize our sermon is the problem of decency and then the false treasures of our hearts. That's the second point. And lastly, the impossible made possible. So those three points I'll try to go through. The passage for us, it begins with a ruler approaching Jesus uh, with a very specific question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks in verse 18. And ruler here uh, is actually not referring to a civil government ruler, uh, but we uh, quickly realize that it's referring to a religious leader, uh, a religious ruler, someone who is well-respected in the faith community. 
Uh, he's well-mannered, he's seemingly respectful, uh, and he addresses Jesus as good teacher. And he really wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. If you go back uh, all the way to chapter 10 in Luke, uh, you'll see uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan where a lawyer starts asking questions of Jesus, and you see a very different tone there, and it's disrespectful there. But there's a contrast now in chapter 18 where this rich young ruler genuinely wants to learn, how can I, what can I do to inherit eternal life, and comes to Jesus to gain understanding. And if you go to Mark, uh, to go to the same account in Mark chapter 10, uh, Mark adds an interesting detail where this rich young ruler kneels before the Lord. So we realize he's respectful, and he comes with a genuine question. And he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And inheriting eternal life is the central driving point uh, in our passage. Other phrases in our passage that convey the same thing uh, we see as entering the kingdom of God, or who can be saved. Those phrases are synonymous in terms of its meaning. It's salvation, getting to heaven, we can say. And we see even prior uh, in sermon, I think, 58 uh, in the series, uh, in verse 14 in the same chapter, uh, where it says, went down about the Pharisees and tax collectors. He went down uh, to his house justified, referring to the tax collector. And that word justified, as we heard, is also synonymous with entering into uh, his kingdom. So to this question that this rich young ruler asks Jesus, Jesus begins his response with an interesting phrase, and then he answers him in verse 19, why do you call me good? And he says, no one is good except God. And if you're theologically oriented, you may be like, wait, Jesus, you are God. Why are you answering that? But I think that's not what Jesus is trying to get us to go towards. Uh, but then immediately he lists the second commandment, a uh, second table of the Ten Commandments for uh, this uh, rich young ruler. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments already. You know you are a well-respected faith leader in this community. So don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He lists those things. And the rich young ruler immediately responds in verse 21. All these I have kept from my youth. What he was saying, I am a good person. I have obeyed these commands. And it wasn't just now, it was since the very early years of my life, from my youthful days, He's saying he never killed anyone. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't steal. He didn't lie as far as he knew what lying was. And he treated his parents with honor and respect. He was saying, I am a keeper of commandments. Of the Ten Commandments, I am a keeper of them. And he was saying, I am a morally decent person, Jesus. I am. And he was conveying a confidence in his moral character. In response to Jesus' uh, reply. And his confidence was to, that, to the point where he was saying, 
I can stand before God and say, I am a keeper of these commandments. And I suspect most of us here can somewhat relate to this rich young ruler in that way. I think most of us here are very nice people. I don't know a lot of you, but I will just assume that. Um, and I think it's safe to say most of you guys probably didn't kill, uh, commit adultery. Perhaps we get into question marks when we get to lying, maybe stealing. But in all, we see ourselves as a decently moral person. We're okay. We're not bad. You know, I go to church. You know, I don't, I don't commit crime. And, you know, I try to obey the laws. I don't ever jaywalk in Korea. And, you know, I, I am a morally okay person. The rich young ruler is so much more pleasant, uh, is so much more pleasant and respectful and decent than the arrogant Pharisee that we saw in the previous passages. The Pharisee's arrogance of moral pride in, in verses 9 through 14, where he says, comparing himself to the tax collector, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee that we saw was very abrasive. But this rich young ruler is not. It's easier to relate to him. But the young man, uh, and the young man is a depiction of the average churchgoer in our passage. And perhaps not just the average churchgoer, the pastor, an elder, a small group leader. It is a depiction of that person who, in all outward purposes, you can see that they are morally decent. They're respectful, commandment-abiding, and genuine. And this passage is drawing us to relate to this rich, young ruler. And if you've been attending church long enough, you do understand that you are still a sinner, that there is lingering sin, and that you have been saved by grace through faith. You do understand that. But again, if you've been to church long enough, there are moments, perhaps many moments, where you start forgetting the force of how sinful you are and were. See, deep down in his heart, this young ruler was not too different from that Pharisee we saw in the previous passages. He trusted his own righteousness and ability to gain right standing before God. See, the Pharisee compares downward. He said, I'm not like this tax collector. I'm better than him. Whereas the rich young ruler compares upward. I am like God. I am good. And I've kept these commandments to the point where God will be pleased. He looks good, but his self-reliance and his brazen arrogance, we can even say, is still 
deep inside of him. And he was telling Jesus, I am good enough. If that's what you're giving me to obey these commandments, I am good enough for that. He was utterly out of touch with the reality of his moral depravity, that he had the sin in him. And he was also out of touch with his inability to gain any moral standing before God. He, he didn't even realize that inability. So the question for us, church, is who do you depend in the day-to-day, in your moral, morality, in your self-assessment? Self, uh, is it your behavior, or is it utterly upon the grace of Jesus Christ? If you need a diag- diagnostic of your heart in terms of self-reliance, there are two, uh, I think, at least two markers that are uh, very good to really see where you are. Uh, and, you know, this is not to... Uh, get you to try to see other people all the time. This is mainly for yourself. Uh, But the two markers are, uh, we can say, humility uh, or contrition. uh, And the second is prayer. For the first marker of humility and contrition, um, I don't know if uh, many of you guys know the, uh, I think he's an indie musician, uh, Sufjan Stevens. Do you guys know him? Okay. Okay. Well, okay, he's not that famous, but um, (laughs) he had his time back in the day. He kind of disappeared into New York uh, recently, but um, he has this one song by the title John Wayne Gacy Jr., Uh, and uh, my uh, former roommate in Philadelphia who was uh, one of the pastors at our church, uh, he loved this artist because he's from Chicago, and this artist is from Chicago, and, uh, you know, he's a Christian, Uh, or he says he's a Christian, and he writes um, subconsciously Christian songs. And if you just hear the title John Wayne Gacy Jr., if you don't know who that is, you you might wonder, okay, what is this song about, this this dude named John? Um, It's a song about a serial killer. John Wayne Gacy Jr. uh, was a, a serial killer a while ago who... Uh, killed more than 33 young boys, uh, and he buried them under his house. Uh, And uh, he was caught. Eventually, he went to jail, and then he was sentenced to death, and uh, he died of lethal injection. But what Sufjan Stevens says in this song, uh, essentially, is that we are no different you know, perhaps you can look at someone who has done terrible things. Perhaps a criminal can come through these doors, sit right here in the middle, and we would probably shy away from them. But Sufjan Stevens is saying through this song, the gospel, in the first instance, is saying we are actually not that different. He says, as he goes through the song, he, I encourage you, you can... Uh, go to YouTube and listen to the song yourself. I won't read the whole lyrics. Um, but he talks about what John Wayne Gacy Jr. did in his crime. And then he mentions how the neighborhoods never knew. 
They welcomed him. He was a good talker. He, his part-time job was being a clown at children's parties. And people didn't know. And eventually, he ends with this stanza in the song, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards, my floorboards, for the secrets I have hid. And he ends the song there. It's a good test for our self-reliance upon our moral uprightness. Do we have contrition and humility for the sinfulness that Jesus Christ died for? And the second is prayer. It's simply, do you pray? Self-reliance is trusting in your own deeds and your moral standing, your moral uprightness, how good you've been. But prayer is an activity that God has given us to commune with him, but also it grows our reliance on him and away from ourself because it helps us kneel before him and say, I cannot do this. I can do it only with you. George Muller uh, is, was a 19th century English pastor who uh, became very uh, well known for his orphanage ministry. Uh, and he had this uh, principle of praying for one hour and then doing four hours of ministry because he, he thought it would uh, be more fruitful than just doing five hours of ministry. Uh, and it reflected his heart to really rely upon God. And he did this starting from the age 32 all throughout his life until the end of his ministry career. Charles Spurgeon, who is uh, known as the king of preachers, or the prince of preachers, would always spend time uh, in his office, office, um, they called it something different, uh, but before every Sunday service, and uh, as I was using this illustration, it, it got me uh, to go repent, uh, but Charles Spurgeon would pray very fervently before every Sunday service. Sometimes to the point uh, it's been said that his deacons had to come to his office and help him to service because they were so, so intensely praying. And then afterwards, after service, he would go back to his office and continue to pray until he had appointments and had to see people. He was dependent on God, the prince of preachers. And I think that life of prayer is reflective of our self-reliance or our dependence upon God. To the rich young ruler's self-reliant response, Jesus tries to help him realize his heart and to show him what he's missing. So Jesus says, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And then come, follow me. He says, sell everything. Empty your bank accounts. Just whatever stuff you have, get rid of it. Give it to someone, and then come follow me. See, the instruction here 
that Jesus is giving this uh, rich young ruler and ourselves uh, isn't uh, the literal of empty your bank accounts. Uh, I hope you guys don't go out after service and empty your bank accounts uh, just without discretion. That's not the point. Uh, Christianity is not about monasticism or ascetism. It's, uh, it's, it's not about just avoiding all worldly pleasures at all costs. Uh, but Jesus says this command to this uh, rich young ruler, not because of the act of selling it, his things will gain him salvation, but because his response will reveal the true issue in his heart. Jesus was trying to help him understand through this reply. He wasn't saying, if you sell everything, you can enter into the kingdom. That's not what he was saying. Jesus was trying to teach him that you cannot inherit eternal life if something other than God is number one in your life. You cannot inherit eternal life if something other than God is number one in your life. Jesus, in a very gentle way, was crushing his self-assessment of himself. He was saying, you are not good. You won't be able to do this. And he was saying, you are not a commandment keeper. You are an idolater. What is an idol? Well, we should quickly uh, go over. Uh, it's anything good that takes the place of God. An idol is not just a statue or a figure. Uh, those are included. But it's anything good that God gives us that we place in the seat of God himself. Tim Keller says, idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. And the question here for us is, what are our idols? Calvin the theologian says, the human heart is an idol factory. Every day we create new idols after crushing old ones. What are our idols today? My student leader that I mentioned had a budding idolatry for comfort and security. She had to have a spouse with $100,000 income. It was the comfort and security she really needed. What is our idol? Is it perhaps your spouse? Is it your children? Is it your career? Perhaps it's entertainment, pleasures, the World Cup is going on. I, you know, I try to not indulge too much, but it is, in some ways, an idol of mine. Is it entertainment for any of us in this day and age of YouTube and Netflix? Or is it, like this rich young ruler, money, comfort, and security? Idols are idols, not only because they're false, but because they will disappoint. And they will never satisfy, ultimately. Idols are idols 
because they cannot handle the hope that we want to place in them. We were created to hope in God. We were created to hope in Christ. And the idols in our lives can't handle that. It will disappoint us, and our hopes will be crushed. And it's interesting here, if you go to verse 23, this rich young ruler, after hearing what Jesus says, becomes sad as he walks away. He realized that his hope was crushed because he put it in his money. Jesus was trying to teach this young man that he needs to unconditionally surrender the first place of his heart and life. And for us, what is that? What is that currently that is taking the seat that God is supposed to be seated in in our lives? What is our idol? If you do ministry long enough, I think you get into this uh, mode of tricking yourself that you are actually morally okay all the time and that you are not self-reliant but that you do depend on God. And for the most part, you, you do kind of, uh, you are healthy uh, because of people praying for you. But sometimes you get into this mode where you misassess yourself like this rich young ruler. Not too long ago, I kind of faced that a little bit, where my uh, mother uh, got a bit ill, um, critically ill. She's okay now. But that moment I realized that I did not trust God in the way that I thought I did, that I started to get angry, bitter, and started to say, I've done all these things. Why is this happening? And it's okay to get sad in those crisis moments, but it's healthy for us to realize that self-reliant heart in us through those situations. Jesus, seeing the sadness and failure of the rich young ruler uh, to give up his idolatry uh, of money and comfort gives us a warning uh, about the I idols of money, comfort, and security particularly. He says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Money can get you a lot of things in this world, in the present world, but it cannot get you to heaven. And money can purchase many, if not all, the pleasures of this world, but it cannot gain you true joy. As the story goes on, someone else interjects the conversation. We don't know who it is, but they ask, then, who could be saved? Who can be saved? And the answer to that question actually is no one. No one can be saved. Up until now, if you follow the passage of what Jesus was saying, the answer to that question is no one. 
Because the proper question should have been, is it possible? And you see that in Jesus' response. And Jesus says, no, with man, it is impossible. And then he says, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. Only God can show us our idols. Only God can free our hearts from them. And only God can change us so that our desires are not for those things, but rather for Him. How? How does He do that? Through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we uh, are perhaps familiar with, says, By grace, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 1 helps us understand the power of that gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Because Christ came, died, and rose again, what was impossible with man is now possible through God. Because Christ died and rose again, by grace, through faith, we can have resurrection life. Christ is the hope of eternal life. He is our hope for real change. See, the rich young ruler had it wrong to begin with. He comes with the question, what must I do? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all on the cross. He came, he died, and he rose again. And we believe upon him and receive him. And that is how we gain eternal life. There's a man uh, in, uh, who lived in the 1900s. He was an Olympian um, by the, you may know his name, Eric Little. Um, if you've seen the very old movie uh, with the title Chariots of Fire, um, it's a movie about him uh, and how he uh, really was submissive to God's laws and the way God wanted him to live. Uh, and he was a S Scottish sprinter in the 1924 uh, Paris Olympic Games. Uh, and before the Olympic Games started, he actually withdrew from his uh, favorite event, the 100-meter dash. He said, I will not uh, compete in that event. And the reason being was it was on Sunday that he had to compete. And he said, because it's on Sunday, it's against uh, my belief about the Sabbath, I will not compete and he most definitely would have won the gold medal. So he shifted gears and trained for the 400, uh, which was not his main event, and eventually won the gold there. And then he won the bronze in the 200-meter dash. And after having accomplished all that, 
He could have become a famous Olympian, lived comfortably. The year after, 1925, uh, he, was, he was a son of missionaries, so he actually went back to where uh, his life started in China to become a missionary. And he eventually, the situation there got so bad, uh, if you remember World War II timeline, uh, that the Japanese had internment camps in China, and he was uh, arrested and placed in uh, an internment camp, and he ended his life there. Uh, the story actually is that he led a very fruitful life in that internment camp, and he died five months before the, world, uh, the war ended uh, in the camp, and there's accounts uh, of him saying his last words were, it's complete surrender. Eric Little led a life that reflected, telling us that he did not hope in these things of the world. He did not place his hope in his accomplishments as an Olympian. He considered them rubbish. So much so that he said, I have to go to become a missionary. The rich young ruler is a stark contrast of how Eric Little led his life. The rich young ruler got the answer that he wanted, and he couldn't do it. And Eric Little said, I have been graced by my Lord Jesus Christ. How can I not? How can I not lead a life that serves him? that is for his kingdom, and that he completely surrendered joyfully. If you are not a Christian with us today, I'm thankful and glad that you are here to join us. Uh, and if you've heard uh, the message today, uh, and it has sparked some interest, curiosity, or perhaps it's shaken your heart a little bit, I encourage you to keep seeking and to come to uh, the pastors, uh, the small group leaders, to keep inquiring about our Lord Jesus Christ and how he can be your hope, your unquenchable hope. And if you are a Christian here today, consider how you have been self-reliant in aspects of your life. Perhaps there has been a growing idol in your life that you have been ignoring. And perhaps you've been self-reliant. Perhaps you have not relied upon God through prayer. Perhaps you hold on to the security of money a little too tightly. I encourage us to repent and to reflect upon what Christ did for us. And as Advent season is here, that we can place our hopes in him and not anything else that will most surely disappoint. And again, this Sunday marks the first week of Advent where we, we remember the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joyful season in some ways, but it's a somber season because we also remember why he came. 
And I hope as we reflect upon that, upon the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he becomes our only hope for our problem of self-reliance and sin. And that he becomes our hope for our deepest desires. And that he is the only hope who will bring us to a joyful surrender. Let's bow our heads and pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.